The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by Cynthia Chung, who is a lecturer, writer, and co-founder of the Rising Tide Foundation in Montreal, Canada. She's the better half of Matthew Arid, who has been a frequent guest on this podcast. She does great analysis, uh, especially on the roots of the scientific dictatorship, which she has lately been covering. Welcome, Cynthia. And how are things in Fuhrer Trudeau's new normal, Canada? Um, well, the Emergency Act hasn't been put through, so that's good news for now. Yeah, I, I saw he repealed that. So temporary reprieve, but it's still frightening. You know, do uh, you, you think they might come back with it again in the near future? Um, I think that because they were so uh, embarrassed on an international scale, and it's not clear if the Senate was going to pass it, because even though the Senate said a lot of disgusting things in terms of uh, backing up the, the emergency act that Trudeau is trying to push through, which he illegally already started to enact on the streets before it was, it was put through. There were a lot of senators that actually spoke out against it, and they were asking for the evidence for why it was justified at that point, because a lot, a lot of it was pretty much, um, a lot of people left at that point because of the police brutality. And uh, they actually had the nerve to say that the evidence was secret and they couldn't share it with the senators, but they wanted them to vote to pass it anyway. That's that's so. classic tyranny, yeah. right? <laughs> um, so uh, today we'll, we're going to talk about um, the stuff you've been writing about in a series of articles. I mean, you, you write a lot about a lot of stuff, but, you know, I wanted to get you on to talk about the occult scientific dictatorship, this, you know, British uh, eugenicist aristocracy. And this is something that I've actually been looking into for like two decades, ever since I was a teenager. It's been fascinating me, science fiction, dystopia, global government and the, and the elites. And so, you know, back in the day, I've read a lot of H.G. Wells, Cecil Rhodes, Thomas and Julian and Aldo Huxley, Bertrand Russell and so forth. And, you know, we're talking about this 19th and 20th century British uh, eugenicism and these these global globalist elite uh, aristocracy, which you know, in their writings for over a century, they've detailed their desires to create one world government, which in reality would be a scientific dictatorship using the governance models of biosecurity and technocracy, among others. And to create, you talk about this, a modern religion, which today effectively is modern science or more accurately scientism. And, you know, towards the end of uh, last year, you wrote a whole series of articles um, and, you know, maybe perhaps to start, you could give us your take on where this all begins for you in the 1800s, um, 1900s, kind of a quick timeline. And then, you know, the basic ideas of these people, sort of like a miniature cra uh, crash course and you know the, the key points in your mind for us to understand. Yeah, well, <clears throat> originally when I uh, had, I, I, it was a, an article that I wanted to write for months and um I was really thinking about the angle to to write it. And then um, I just kept reading, you know, books on top of books, not just of Aldous, but uh, of H.G. Wells um, and, uh, and and listening to lectures. And at a certain point, I'm like, I'm just going to start. And um, so the first part was just a kind of summary. But I realized uh, as an introduction to get people interested in coming on this journey of exploration of what was Aldous Huxley's real point in writing Brave New Worlds? Because a lot of people really think that he was a sweet old man that was trying to warn us of a scientific dictatorship. And um, I realized when I wrote that first part that it really does begin with his grandfather, uh, T.H. Huxley. 
And I mean, there's so much to the story. I realize actually after doing this series, it has really allowed me to connect so many different aspects of what I thought were kind of not entirely connected, maybe different schools that were um, not on the such the same page. Like they, there's so much overlap. Let's just put it that way. They, they worked with each other. And um, so T.H. Huxley, for those who are not aware, he is uh, the one that is really responsible for putting uh, the ideas of Darwin um, into mainstream science. And, and he was called Darwin's bulldog. And this is going to be uh, relevant to Aldous Huxley's, um, you know, viewpoint. But um, he was called Darwin's uh, bulldog, even though, funny enough, he himself said that he was not sold on Darwin's philosophy. Um, but what was interesting, and I, I make this a, a common theme throughout the series, is that Aldous makes it clear in his Brave New World that in addressing science, you can't have a sense of purpose. You can't have a sense of uh, directionality or truth in a scientific dictatorship. And in the case of Mustafa Mond, he he makes that clear in in the the the, the quotes that Aldous puts um, in his frame of of mind, which I find Mustafa Mond is probably representative of Aldous. I imagine Aldous views himself as a as a controller uh, on that level, which I don't think is true in practice, but he he flattered himself. Um, but that if you want a scientific dictatorship, which he says is necessary, because ultimately you need to curb uh, the human population, but you also need to curb um, creativity. Because if you have creativity, you have a sense of purpose and truth, you can't govern the narrative. And therefore, you can't have control over the masses for, you know, whatever justification you think that you you are warranted to have that control. So that was the main crux behind T.H. Huxley's backing of Darwin was that it was a convenient um, tool to be used to now deny um, truth in science. Because before then, and the Enlightenment also did a lot to undermine this, but before then, there were a lot of leading scientists who were uh, Christians or, or uh, other religions as well. Um, you know, the, the Islamic Renaissance, too, is a, a, a very powerful period that um, I don't know how many people are aware of that. And um, so it was common for scientists to believe in God, to believe in a, in, um, uh, a creator of the universe that has a moral purpose. There, there is a point to life. There's a meaning to your life. You're not just some insignificant worm. Um, and uh, and so that was what they were trying to basically destroy is this idea of the, the sacredness of the individual, the the sovereignty, the creativity of the, the individual. And so with T.H. Huxley not actually believing in Darwin, he promoted those ideas. He, he slammed the scientists that were um, very much, um, you know, there was a of the oh, my God, I'm forgetting now the scientist's name, um, Matt. Who is the scientist's name that was for the cephalization? Oh, James Dwight Dana. James Dwight Dana. Thank you. He's giving me my copy. So he conveniently showed up. Um, and so, yeah, there was um, a very competent group of scientists that were not like, it wasn't like how they were saying that anyone that was against Darwinism was just 
you know, these fundamentalists that uh, took the, the Bible literally, but you had these competent scientists around uh, James Dwight Dana and, and before him that believed in the civilization um, uh, concept of evolution, which is that when, when evolution occurs, it's not based on random uh, events, um, but rather that evolution has a purpose in itself. So when, you know, you have uh, the, uh, the evolution of flight, you have the evolution of sight, thinking, all of these were actually arguably intentional. There was an intentional process within uh, the how creation has evolved where those things uh, were intended to occur. And you see actually in fossil records that um, the capability for flight or the attempts where you have like wings that are being grown, you have feathers and these types of things that are, are, are towards flight, they're happening in multiple parts of the world simultaneously. So there was no way that there, it was just like migration or that these things were just like, there was one mutation that somehow was selected upon and then was spread. Um, and so that was the main point. So <clears throat> what happened when Darwinism became kind of the, the, the new dogma was that it denied truth. The universe was now random. The universe didn't have a directionality or purpose. And we were now beasts. And uh, there was no sacredness to the individual. And, um, you know, for the record, I'm not actually Christian. Um, I'm not really of like any religion, but I do believe that the, there is like a creative process of the universe that is loving and good, not to sound flaky because, uh, but you know, words are kind of always going to be inadequate for describing such a process, but that there is, there is a sacredness and that we, we do have, um, our mind, the fact that our mind can like conceive of the eternal um, and conceive of these concepts that are like much further beyond just like a material existence means that there is something more to us than just the fact that we're we're beasts. And the point I make in um, in the part two of the series is that by denying truth, by denying the sacredness of the individual, that's when you are reduced now to saying that life is really just about comfort. Um, and material happiness. And that's obviously going to be much uh, easier of a, you know, a population to control at that point when they yeah. don't have that higher um, identity. No one's going to be willing to die or stand up for anything um, that has uh, an element of like, you know, this higher justice, this higher cause. If at the end of the day, nothing really matters, you're going to, you know, a message from our sponsors. The Nomos app will help you survive COVID-1984 and the Great Reset. Nomos is a time bank that can be used by communities anywhere in the world. You just need to talk people into using it. For example, if you go to your barber for a 30-minute haircut, your barber receives 30 minutes in his time bank. He can then use that time to pay for an appointment with the doctor. I've spoken to the developer who is passionate about creating solutions for surviving and thriving in the apocalypse. Nomos is available in both English and Spanish. Hurry and visit nomos.net before they roll out the cashless society and put you in the algorithm ghetto. Also, if you need health insurance that covers you wherever you may roam, check out my friend James Guzman's borderless health insurance. 
One of the great things about living internationally is saving money on health care, but private care overseas can be expensive. Go to borderlesshealthinsurance.com to watch a short presentation on expat and digital nomad healthcare and sign up for a free consultation to review your options. Geopolitics and Empire needs funding. You can leave a donation, book a consultation, or become a member, which gets you access to my brief weekly commentary, a monthly newsletter of my thoughts, a private telegram, a monthly members group call, and my second premium broadcast called Dissident Thinker, where I conduct interviews and provide solo analysis. Dissident Thinker is also available on Rockfin and for supporters on Locals. So from there, things seem to snowball forward, right? From um, Thomas Huxley, and then you get the other Huxleys, and you know all these H.G. Wells and and you know Cecil Rhodes is somewhere in there, and and Richard Russell, where things from here uh, just seem to snowball forward. And I don't want to get ahead of myself. Maybe towards the end we can talk about this. But would you also say this from here we can trace back today's Great Reset to, to in some way? Like, is there some link from from where you started to to today? Just briefly. Sure. Um, well, uh, for instance, Hariri or Harari? Yuval Harari, yeah. I always uh, put a different uh, vowel in there. Um, he says himself that he is um, a disciple of H.G. Wells. I mean, even though he didn't know H.G. Wells directly, he's, he like H.G. Wells is his godhead. And H.G. Wells was mentored by T.H. Huxley. T.H. Huxley was the most influential person in H.G. Wells' life, and H.G. Wells was in um, many ways one of the mentors of Aldous Huxley. He had uh, many. Bertrand Russell was another mentor of Aldous Huxley, which we'll get into in a little bit. But um, actually, Bertrand Russell is really important for people to understand in the sense of the what has uh, affected the philosophy of the Great Reset, which is very much around transhumanism and, and cybernetics, is that uh, Bertrand Russell with his Principia Mathematica, which I, I guess we'll, we can get into this in a, in a little bit, but just the, to say that Bertrand Russell um, introduced a philosophy into uh, mathematical logic that became what now dictated science again. Like this was an, the other kind of revolution. So you had Darwin and then at the beginning of the 20th century with David Hilbert's call to uh, um, you know, basically formulate everything, all knowledge we know in science into mathematical formula. And that's what Bertrand Russell and Alfred North Whitehead did with their Principia Mathematica. And this was kind of the new Bible for mathematicians, you can say. And that's why our world right now is very much controlled with mathematical models. And so if you can have a mathematical model that can project a theoretical reality we're supposed to take that as scientific proof that that reality exists or that that possibility exists or, you know. And so the thing is, is that you could do whatever with a mathematical model if you don't know, like, how to uh, actually, you know, put in um, the, the person who makes the model is the person who makes the model, like the model itself is not the AI, the model itself is not the brain. It's not like this Oracle eye, you know? So well, I guess what you're trying to say is not like objective. So it's, it's biased by no. whoever creates it, right? Yeah, but they're acting exactly, but they're acting like it, it is, um, it is an objective science, but if you control the parameters of your model, 
then that model is going to be limited to those parameters. Um, and it won't be able to exit those, those parameters. And so it's actually, you know, uh, a feedback loop in, in a lot of ways. So um, that's where like the whole idea of artificial intelligence and cybernetics, Julian Huxley actually came up with uh, transhumanism. So all of this is very much tied into this, uh, into the story. So HG Wells is kind of like the, the, the inheritor, you could say, because even though T.H. Huxley's um, son, Leon, Leonard, was not really an intellectual force. So he like wrote a few books and one of his books is supposed to be, you know, helpful to bring forth the eugenics movement because the eugenics movement didn't exist during T.H. Uh, Huxley's life. But then Julian Huxley, who's the grandson of T.H. Uh, Huxley would become the vice president and president of the British Eugenics Society. So there's a clear link to all of these ideas and um, eugenics. And um, so H.G. Wells was very much kind of a, a, a mentor for Aldous and Julian because Leonard wasn't really uh, a force. And, and T.H. Huxley was kind of a godhead in the Huxley household. Like um, Aldous and Julian were under a lot of pressure to, to try to, to be at that level. And uh, everything that they did was really to, to try to, you know, extend this kind of uh, proud family uh, legacy. And um, what do I say? Um, yeah, so with Bertrand Russell's um, mathematics, I mean, yeah, it's so much to go through. But um, with Bertrand Russell's mathematics, again, it was to encourage this idea of the universe as ultimately random, it's unknowable. Um, if there is a purpose, it's not a purpose that we can we can come to know. And um, in part two, I also make the point that uh, Aldous Huxley himself, uh, arguably, arguably, I mean, likely plagiarized uh, Bertrand Russell's scientific outlook, that Bertrand Russell himself, in a letter to his publisher, was contemplating charging Aldous with plagiarism. It's They have a funny relationship. When Aldous was younger, he's actually... Uh, very outspoken of how much he thought H.G. Wells and Bertrand Russell were unlikable people. But at the same time, you know, the philosophy was something he ultimately um, was beholden to, but he rebelled, I guess you could say, in his own ways. Like Julian Huxley was more of the like the good, the good boy, the straight A student of the family. Aldous was more of the rebel. Um, but uh, there was also a paper that he did actually that the Guardian mentioned in 1930, where he outright promotes eugenics. So it and that was one year before Brave New World. So there's there's I think that that gives the main, you know, backing for what was the philosophy behind Brave New World and um, that, you know, the roundtable, the Fabian Society, which, again, is a lot to go through, but I, I want to say a few things on this. Um, the old imperialist way of, of war and geopolitics was considered something that um, could not go uh, for, for too much further. So, you know, H. G. Wells also makes this point of um, decadence and so forth, pleasure, the circuses, the mysteries are going to be the new forms of control that people will need to love their servitude. So you don't have these uprisings, you don't have these revolutions because, you know, again, if people are encouraged to think of themselves as beasts of pleasure and you 
they're, they feel satiated with that pleasure, then there will be no need for a revolution. Um, I would just add, like, yeah. for me, for me so reading all of these, you know, going back in the past few decades that I've been following this stuff, for me, the common denominators that I get is between all of these elites that they want a global government, which, as you point out, you can't keep playing all of these, ge you know, this geopolitical real politic, because if you want to create a glo truly global government, I mean, you can't have, uh, you know, these fights between um, nation states. So they have to find some kind of way or mechanism to get to this planetary system. And then it's also based on, as you say, eugenics, right, which we're seeing uh, now in, in different forms throughout. So throughout the 20th century, we've seen eugenics kind of morph from, you know, the, the old fashioned, um, you know, n Nazi way, which was influenced by the early 1900s American uh, eugenicists, you know, like all of the Carnegie's and Ford's and, and, and all the Rockefeller's and all these people. Today, we've signed a, kind of seen it shift into this green uh, agenda, which for me is just another face of eugenics and then technocracy right scientific dictatorship using what, what you've, you've been describing the, the mathematical system a technology you talk about in some of your more recent articles the rand corporation and the uh, american military industrial uh, complex and so for me that's kind of the the, the common uh, vision that i get this global dystopian uh, government and then they do get rid of spirituality as you say um, religion in general they've created a new religion uh, and it's all just about controlling um, you know the, they're the elite and they want to control the rest of us who they view as you know uh, inferior yeah and uh, just to quickly mention too Julian Huxley is is pretty much the founder of UNESCO and he wrote the manifesto and um, for people to also be aware that HG Wells wrote um, uh the uh well the open conspiracy is a is a big one that that calls for just what you you're talking about he also wrote um i believe it's called the new world order yeah and um he also wrote a book um promoting the league of nations concept as well um so i mean they're they're very upfront uh especially hg wells is very upfront with like how he views things and um julian hg wells also wrote what he titled his bible series which or three books. I don't have the titles uh, memorized, but they're in the series. But one is The Life of Science, which he co-wrote with Julian Huxley. And um, that was going to go through like behaviorism, because like also this whole psychoanalyst uh, movement, which I'll go through next, because that's tied into the occult. Um, the behaviorism was something already at that point that they were like very interested in from the psychoanalyst uh, viewpoint. And um, and so, yeah, Julian Huxley was the disciple of uh, of H.G. Wells. So moving on to part three of the uh, occult and the psychoanalysts. Um, yeah, I just want I just want to mention the, the occult because um, <laughs> I had a question on that. You talk about this, and uh, you've mentioned I think in your writings and past interviews, the theosophist Helena Blavatsky. Um, you know, occultist. I for me, I also interpret it uh, as a Satanism because they esteem uh, Lucifer and they view him uh, as Prometheus. And I, I think you've you've also talked about Alice Bailey, and she founded the Lucifer Publishing Company in 1922, which changed its name to um, Lucis Trust. And you know, they're an, uh, they they are an official NGO who are uh, part of uh, the UN, the ECOSOC. Uh, um, and I've actually visited. You know, they have offices in New York. Uh, London and and Geneva, 
and I, you know, I subscribe to their material and, and I read it just to be informed. And, you know, here, here's from May 2009, you know, when I was studying grad, in grad school in Geneva. I actually went to one. Their office in Geneva is right across from the old uh, original League of Nations building, which is now the UN Geneva. You've got the main plaza where you've got the League of Nations, and right across is are the offices of uh, Lucis Trust. And you know, I, I I went just to attend, just to see with my own eyes. And so people can no longer call me conspiracy theorist, right? It's like you talk about this, oh, you conspiracy theorist, Lucifer and UN, and it's like no, I went I went to their meeting, and it was mostly mostly older people. Um, no, very nice, and it was all this new age st stuff type. Uh, lovely cookies, I'm sure. Yeah, and you know they, they gave me this pamphlet, and let me just read. Um, you know, talks about Shambhala and new group of world servers and all this stuff. But you know, here's an interesting quote. It says, "Whether or not the ancient Greeks were responding to the ageless wisdom." A teaching on the solar angels, I, I don't know, but the ancient doctrine that the solar angels came from the planet Venus, bringing the principle uh, of mind to what was then animal man is the basis of the role of Lucifer, whose name means light bearer, the capacity to think, to choose, to decide were endowed in man by the coming in of mind. Lucifer, um, Lucifer, just as Prometheus, was condemned for his actions because by them the gods lost control of man, uh, so to speak. So, and if you read um, their doctrine, um, Lucifer's trust, they view Lucifer as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Islamic Mahdi, as the Maitreya, right, uh, as the Buddha. And you know, in in, in the biblical Christian view, it talks about uh, Antichrist coming first, who who portrays himself as you know christ as the messiah so you know for, for me this was just for my personal faith as a you know christian who believes in the bible this was just more confirmation uh in that direction but uh just you know if you want to go on that tangent uh, of the occult since you were starting to bring it up yeah oh i know it's so crazy um um yeah well one thing I want to add before I actually go into what I wrote in my part three is um, one of the articles I did more recently on uh, Trotskyism to radical positivism. Um, Bertrand Russell, again, Bertrand Russell is everywhere. This man, it's almost like he had twins or triplets or something like he was just everywhere. But um, his involvement with the, the Fabian Society um, again, the Fabian Society is tied with promoting um, Marxist ideas, but also Darwinism and predominantly, you know, Marxist ideas in the context of a Darwinist, um, you know, perspective. And what's interesting he's, he, is he wrote this book, uh, Roads to Freedom, uh, Socialism, Anarchism and uh, Syndicalism. And what's interesting is he he promotes anarchism as the ultimate ideal, but it's so ideal that we're probably not going to be able to achieve it anytime soon. So, uh, you know, he says guilt socialism is, is, uh, is the ideal of a more anarchistic bent. And he says that like in the arts and sciences, anarchism is the ideal. But then he also says in this, and he's a sympathetic to Bakunin and um, Kropotkin, which will be uh, relevant um, right after I, I make this point, is that it's ultimately the League of Nations. So he he likes anarchism because it reduces the ability for nation states to govern and um, that ultimately we should do away with this at some point, which, you know, a lot of people just interpret that as, oh, well, that's like communal living than like, you know, local living. And I think, no, 
he's talking about we will get away, uh, we will do away with nations for a one world government, the League of Nations, which he says, you know, I have the, the quote of it <clears throat> in that book. That's what the roads of freedom lead you to is the one world government, you know, of the very clear Julian Huxley, H.G. Wells um, way of thinking. So um, the story starts for, for, for my paper that um, Bakunin, who was, uh, you know, the, the leader of the international anarchists, uh, he settles in Switzerland in his later years and um, near Ascona or in Ascona. And um, he basically is the kind of godfather to what uh, later arises as the Mount Verita Society. And they, they credit him for this. The, the theosophists, too, are very much like overlapping with um, Mount Verita. They're, they're pretty much on the same page. And um, in Mount Verita, you start to have um, some very... It, it already sold itself as like, you know, very bohemian way of living. They always promote themselves in these things. And you'll notice Aldous Huxley, you know, started a ranch that was of this mindset. Even Maurice Strong also had his ranch of this very Mont Verita uh, ideal philosophy, um, which is that you're living with nature. It's like um, very uh veg vegetarianism is always like a part of it and uh bohemian but it's also ultimately against um industry civilization um science at basically western civilization as a whole which i'll explain a little bit more exactly what that means um so one figure that becomes sort of the ruler of this uh wild bohemian society is otto gross who is um, was the first disciple of Sigmund Freud before, before Carl Jung. And uh, so Otto Gross was going to be a big deal. He was already a little bit of a big deal as uh, the, 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 the genius psychoanalyst. And um, he gets involved with uh, Mount Verita. I don't know exactly who introduced him to it. And um, he, his philosophy is um, very much anarchistic. Um, which is that you should just not never deny yourself anything. And Western, everybody who comes to Mount Verita is sick. They're sick from Western civilization because Western civilization has put, you know, um, very, uh, they, they have contorted you into and shaped you into something that you were not. And this is to deny our true, you know, power, our true um, kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, like, basically, power. And so the way to release that is to just not deny yourself anything. And so sex orgies were a really big part of Otto Gross's uh, um, therapy, but he was to the point where you wouldn't even deny someone's suicide. And there's like a quote of him even saying, you know, a beautiful death is better than a low probability of cure. And he was definitely um, uh, tied to two of his... Um, his patients uh, committing suicide, which he he facilitated the poison for. So not surprisingly, with this whole thing of like, just do what thou wilt kind of thing, very much what Aleister Crowley also would uh, share. Yeah, because got the book here, Aleister, there he is. <laughs> Anyways, continue. Oh, yeah. uh, there's, there's some funny pictures of Aleister, like, you know, uh, dressed up in like the Pharaoh suit and, and so forth. Um, 
So yeah, not not only were these psychoanalysts that uh, that were convening at uh, Mount Berita, which I'll I'll, I'll bring uh, up in a in a in a moment, but you had the free the 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 Otto Templi Orientis Ordo Templi Orientis that was also starting to be set up in Mount Berita. But um, just to quickly say that, so Otto Gross he starts to have um, mental problems uh, and. He is uh, uh, brought into a hospital that Carl Jung, of all people, ends up being his uh, treating uh, uh, psychiatrist, and he's diagnosed with schizophrenia. But Otto Gross ends up kind of converting Carl Jung to his philosophy, and Carl Jung starts coming to Mount Verita and uh, being totally sold on this whole Aryan sun religion thing, which is very much tied into what you were bringing up with uh, the Lucius Trust, because there is this uh, this worshiping of the sun, which sounds healthy, you know, on the surface, but then you read actually how they're thinking about it, and it's it it is it's got a lot of Luciferian overlap, which I'll go over in a minute because there's so many things that are connecting that it's hard to to explain myself fully. Um, so at the same, not that much uh, long after the Otto Gross. Um, situation by the way he ends up dying at 43 he's quoted as saying he only wanted to live to 45 and he wished to have a beautiful death as an anarchist as assassinating some you know high level leader <laughs> and um so you have a uh, um Rus, i forgot his first name who ends up being the head of the ordo templi orientis and uh, you have the Hermetic Brotherhood of the Light, again, this theme of light um, that is uh, started in Mount Verita. And um, at a, a certain point, Aleister Crowley ends up, you know, becoming the head of all of this. And um, he's the one who uh, introduced the, the law of the Lima, which is do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. So again, the Bakunin philosophy, Kropotkin also went to Mount Verita, by the way. So these they're all interconnecting. Bakunin, Otto Gross's philosophy, Aleister Crowley's philosophy, they're all one. They're, there's no disagreement. And um, uh, what did I want to say about that? Oh my God, there's so much to say. Anyway, so with the, um, the Blavatsky thing, even though I only know right now about the the uh, the philosophical overlap with it. Although, if you look at the parapsychology society, um, there there is connections with this Blavatsky um, grouping. And then when uh, Aldous goes to California, there's clear connections with it. But um, yeah, the the idea of the of what you were talking about with Lucius Truss and Alice Bailey and uh, Lucifer is that they're called solar angels. And um, Lucifer is one of them. And their idea is that you must bring forth the dark so that the light can shine its brightest. It's very upside down. And um, what you notice too is that the Scottish Rite actually have the exact same philosophy as well um, in their, I forgot the name of the, the book, but it's in my Origins of America's uh, Secret Police. Um, there's a quote again where they say that it's in fact Lucifer who is the 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 the, the true good God, and that the the God that we've told is the real God is actually you know the bad the bad God. So it's all the same philosophy. Yeah, yeah. I would just add in my reading of of masonry back in the day, you you see them discuss 
well, for, from my understanding, to become a Mason, you have to b- believe in, in some form of deity. So some god. And then you see them talk about the grand architect uh, of the universe. And again, who is this grand architect? And then you you see like people, the, the writings of Albert Pike and others constantly re- referring to Lucifer. So it's, it's just like you're saying, the, the grand architect, uh, Prometheus, you know, uh, Lucifer. So it's, it's, it's always this, this is the, this is the thing. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, this is a recent discovery for me. So I'm like, um, it's in some ways it's, it's, it's great news because it's like, it, it, it is so much easier to understand how, how things are actually operating when, when you, you have that common thread. Um, so the, the, where Aldous comes into this is that D.H. Lawrence is another member of, uh, Mount Verita and D.H. Lawrence is a major mentor of Aldous Huxley. And, uh, basically, um, the way that Aldous Huxley, you know, lives his life in California at that point and with this whole, you know, ranch that he starts, uh, Lona Ranch or something like that, is very much of the Ascona type. And Aldous Huxley, um, later on becomes the kind of, godfather of the Esalen Institute, which is again promoting very clearly um, a lot of the teachings from um, Mount Verita and again putting in the the, the spas and the vegetarianism. So it seems like it's just a, a health, you know, things to to clean yourself of the like the dirty capitalist materialism or whatever maybe and uh, become one with yourself. Um, but it's actually something for depending, I think, who it is. I'm sure some people have had very innocent experiences at the Esalen Institute, but then they always have the the, the courses that are not on the on the public roster. You know, you have to be invited into those things. Um, so, yeah, D.H. Lawrence, um, I'll, I'll just say to summarize it, because it's going to be a long interview, that he's very, D.H. Lawrence, what Otto Gross was the, um, the, the teacher of D.H. Lawrence and Carl Jung, and Hermann Hess. Um, so these are all very major uh, players. And then uh, Alistair Crowley starts his Agape Lodge number two in California, two years before Aldous Huxley, Gerald Hurd, Christopher Isherwood all end up moving to California. Um, Christopher Isherwood two years after Aldous and Gerald, which was, uh, they went in, in 37. And the Agape Lodge was in 1935. And I'm noticing too, the whole weird Agape Lodge situation with um what's his name jack parsons and the rockets and all that that there's some possible connection with uh the beginnings of rand with that because they there's some overlap overlapping interest the the story of jack parsons is super weird because apparently him and his friend wrote this book of like everything that was going to happen to them in the future before it happened it's it's like one of these like kind of magic trips tricks. Uh, I don't I don't quite know yet how I, to think about it, but it's super super weird yeah, story. I just, Actually, I just, amazing. Polly talked about it a bit. Yeah, I wanted to just co- comment on this because you were writing some articles about how these guys were then beginning to influence the counter culture, and there are other books that, that talk about this. Um, you know, for, for me, I, I I was a big rock and roll fan, and uh, here are just some uh, you know things that I have. There's this ten hour documentary it's 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 christian but it's called it's they have a three-hour version but there's a 10-hour version called they sold their souls for rock and roll and the amazing thing that he does here is 
he uses mostly original footage that you've never seen anywhere else before. And you've got like Bono in the edge and you two saying these are like original footage where they're saying, you know, yeah, we felt the presence in in the room as we wrote the hit song, you know, one, we wrote it like in, in one take in an instant. And then you have Bob Dylan saying, literally, he he, uh, he has to fulfill his bargain uh, with the devil. devil. So all this kind of crazy like stuff. And then you've got, of course, uh, Alistair Crowley and, you know, mm-hmm. Alist- Alistair was huge in the rock and roll uh, movement, like in the 60s and beyond, because his mm-hmm. face was on the cover of a Beatles albums. Um, Black Sabbath wrote a song for Mr. Crowley. Um, mm-hmm. One of my previous favorite bands, the Canadian group Tea Party, uh, Jeff Martin, the lead singer, was heavily steeped in, in Crowleyism. Uh, mm-hmm. Jay Z, uh, you know, wears clothes. Do he, he, there's that shirt with Jay Z? Um, I'm where, sure Jimmy Page too. I think. Yeah, was yeah very. Was. Actually, yeah, I remember reading about Jeff Martin of the Tea Party going to hang out with Jimmy Page, uh, who's like a disciple of um, Crowley. And then you know, yeah, one of like a high level one. Yeah, and one of my previous, uh, I used to listen to The Killing Joke, which is this UK like metal band. Um, and Jazz Coleman, the lead singer, he recently, in a, just a year or two ago, in a newsletter revealed that he actually lived with people from the Tavistock uh, Institute. And he was um, revealed, he was tacitly wow. admitting, admitting uh, this was just like a year or two ago, that yeah, that they are actually, their purpose is to destroy Christianity and tradition and pave the way for this new age. He's, he's openly admitting to being part of this Tavistock movement in rock. Uh, and, you know, I also wanted to mention there's the book Laurel Canyon, Covert Ops and the Dark Heart of the Hippie Dream. I haven't been able to, to read it yet, yet, but that book details how many of these rock stars from Jim Morrison of the Doors and others, that their parents, you know, their fathers worked We're in the, in the, military. In the mi- yeah, military. So you, you've got, you see all this stuff. It's like, what you're discussing from the 1800s and the first half of the 20th century. And then from there, that they're really steeped in the in the counter this you know 60s counterculture movement sex drug and rock and roll and and all of this stuff so anyways that was my little uh spiel there but continue i mean it's like it's super i i would like if you can send me the name of that laurel canyon book because yeah i i know laurel canyon is uh deeply involved in this but i haven't actually had time to to look into it so i would be interested in reading that book um uh Oh my God, there is so much that you just went through and now I just uh, totally uh, uh, blanked out. Um, okay, in terms of this whole uh, Tavistock thing, well, wait, actually, so when, I'll just start with like when Aldous goes to um, California, um, right, this, sorry, I'm like a little bit short-circuiting. Uh, when Aldous goes to California, I think the big thing for people to to get because it's, it's very complex the the story is that he becomes friends with Krishnamurti and Krishnamurti is the um the what was sold by the Theosophist Society as Maitreya the future Buddha and uh, this was by Annie Besant who was not just a a leading uh, Theosophist member but she was also a leading Fabian Society member and also she was part of the Marxist Social Democratic uh, um, grouping as well. And by the way, the Fabian Society is what started the Labour Party, um, which has connections into Trotskyism later on because they they wanted to infiltrate the Labour Party and, uh, you know, organize the unions, but it was ultimately not about industry, but about politics. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of subversion from that angle as well. It's very uh, 
complex. Um, luckily, it seems that the generation managing things right now, um, you know, the Klaus Schwab generation are not anywhere near as sophisticated. So just for people to keep that in mind, because I can see, you know, it might be a little bit scary to go through some of this history that they're just like all knowing and they're everywhere. But um, luckily, they've been dumbing themselves down significantly. So good news there. Um, so Krishnamurti actually is really good friends with Aldous Huxley. And um, this was part of the thing that the undermining Christianity, to do that, they were introducing a false spirituality. And, you know, the Aldous Huxley, too, is very interested in studying the, the mysticism of religion. That is to the what, because, you know, some people have like these outer body experiences. They're kind of like on the mystical side of religion. And uh, there's this like, you know, catharsis and things like this. And H.G. Wells, brings this up too in his open conspiracy for the modern religion, that the modern religion should be really about just um, uh, surrendering yourself to something with no thought, no belief structure, nothing. It's really of an emotional uh, state. And that's what they were kind of corrupting from the, from largely Hinduism teachings was uh, this kind of false spirituality. They had false gurus like Krishnamurti, which, you know, Lord, the uh, Lord, uh, Maitreya is supposed to be, you know, the, 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 the world's teacher that is not of any school or thought, but this guy was like t completely tutored by Annie Besant for his, like, he was adopted like in, uh, as a teenager and he was totally educated by Annie Besant and like people are supposed to believe that He's just, you know, not representing any kind of um, angle or or a viewpoint. What's interesting is that the Vedanta Society was a, uh, um, which is a is a um, a part of of uh, the Hindu religions. Like I think there's seven schools, um, and Vedanta is one of them. Um, there was a weirdness where Aldous Gerald and Christopher Isherwood were always at this Vedanta Society in Southern California, um, but there was uh, the the Swami there did not actually trust Krishnamurti and they were also close with Krishnamurti. And there's a dialogue actually with Alan Watson, his autobiography, who is also, you know, he's recognized as a, a, a guru of Zen Buddhism in the West, but he actually has direct ties to the Annie Besant school with the, uh, the Buddhist lodge in England um, under Christmas Humphrey, who like Annie Besant, Alice Bailey, uh, close direct connections to. Alan Watts has this conversation with this Swami from the Vedanta Society in Southern California, basically, you know, with his bullshit interpretation of the, the philosophy that you don't need to do any work in order to be enlightened. And the Swami's like, no, no, that's not how it works. You have, you do have to have discipline. You do have to work on yourself and all of this. And so, it's very clear there, like Alan Watts actually shares this in his autobiography as if like, you know, this is him bragging. Um, so Krishnamurti, you know, there's a lot of controversy because, you know, he said that I, he wasn't any longer a part of the Theosophist Society, but actually this is totally not true. He always promoted the Theosophist Society for his entire life. And um, the clearest thing to prove that is that he sets up a school called something like that Happy Valley School with Aldous Huxley as one of the people, which is later on called the Annie Besant School. Uh, so I 
I don't think you could have it any more clear than that. And so Krishnamurti is one of the major influencers of the counterculture movement in terms of this false idea of spirituality. And the counterculture movement is basically, you know, William Sargent, who is also kind of, you know, he's like not directly on record involved with the Tavistock Institute, but he pretty much um, is. And he was at the the, the, the pioneering um, stage of this whole like mentoring candidate studies and, you know, how to create a blank slate and put another personality into that person and so forth. You know, Ewan Cameron's um, treatments at McGill and all of this are uh, pretty much uh, as a result of William Sargent's work. And William Sargent was good friends with Aldous Huxley, and they even mention each other many times in their lectures and their books. They're, they're very much intrigued by each other's um, thoughts on things. And again, it was this idea of like, how do you increase suggestibility? Because it was found that it's suggestibility works best if it's done by an illusion of free will. So you can't force, it's, it, you can cause stress and, and things like this, but ultimately the best forms of suggestibility, which will be the most stable, are when someone thinks that they're uh, taking it in from, from free choice. Um, and so this kind of mass conditioning that we're seeing that is effective in, in many ways, um, but has its limitations, um, is very much uh, along this process of, of what they've been studying. Um, and uh, the counterculture movement was not just this, like, you know, let's replace um, all of these, like, teachings and, and, and proper education with just, like, I can be enlightened just by, like, something that comes into my head, like, and, oh, I can say that it came into my head from this other thing, you know, like Alice Bailey said, that her rays of initiation, or I think one of those books was from this Tibetan that was talking to her through telepathy. Um, so you can have all the, these kinds of like, you know, bullshit um, reasons for why what you're saying is for, you know, enlightened instead of actually using reason um, to, to, to determine these things. Um, and I, I wanted, um, I mean, sort of to close, to bring us, to try to get somehow to the great reset because there's you've written a lot and i'm going to include the links in the description and i always stress to listeners you got to be reading you can't just listen to podcasts uh you have to read this stuff and i would urge people to go read uh, uh your, your writings as well as look at the bibliographies and get some of these books that that we're discussing that you, that you cite uh, as well uh, in your articles, I just—I also had another interesting book, *The Secret History of Rock and Roll and the Mysterious Roots uh, of Modern Music*. Because you mentioned how I think it was Hoxley, how they wanted to use certain forms of music to dumb us down, and I, I, and this book also like kind of sh sheds light how today's kind of modern rock and roll music is goes back to paganism uh, as well. And so, and there's that difference between classical, you know, the classical education and classical music, which is more, I think, linked to, to, to humans and, and, you know, a higher intellect versus, you know, rock and roll, which is kind of like uh, dealing with our base instincts. And just to kind of get us to the Great Reset, we, we see some connections, like you've talked about Hoxley and Bertrand Russell and the UN, UNESCO, which, you know, that's part of Klaus Schwab's private public-private partnerships. So we've got the UN there, you know, Lucis Trust is part of the UN, 
the Huxleys and all of all of those folks. So we got the UN, um, and then we've got you know Switzerland is often featured here. Um, how do we get then? How how closely linked is the Great Reset or what we know as the Great Reset today to what we've been discussing over you know these last two centuries? Um, it's it's a continuation of the of the philosophy, and um, again, the transhumanism comes from Julian Huxley, and um, cybernetics comes from uh, Norbert Wiener, who is a, a, a student of Bertrand Russell. Um, so the the game is always to be on top in terms of um, introducing a philosophy. Um, a religion in a lot of ways in the sciences that will always control because they want to uh, um, tap the scientific um, advancements, right? They know that even though it seems, I think for a lot of people that the, the great reset agenda has like a, is completely dominating the, the science uh, scene right now, that's not true. And they actually uh, clearly see that, um, you know, creative individuals, um, within the sciences have the ability to, if the genie is let out of the bottle, it, it, it will spread everywhere and it um, creates a, a situation that's very hard to, to control in that sense. So their best ways to introduce these scientific philosophies that encourage you to think that you're like a robot, that encourage you to think like you're a monkey or whatever, and never like an actual human being that can come up with creative moral um, solutions to the, the problems that we're, we're facing. So the Great Reset is just a continuation of that. But I think that a lot of people uh, see through this. I mean, even um, with what is going on right now in terms of the energy crisis in Europe and the agricultural uh, crisis that's going on and the European Union is you know, pushing this fit for 55 and farm to fork and uh, it's got the World Economic Forum written all over it. Um, I mean, even if you have a problem understanding nuclear energy um, and, you know, what has happened there in terms of lowering the standard of living of uh, people, I think everybody's on the same page that uh, not having any control over genetic modification of foods um, is probably not a good idea. And uh, that's what they're promoting again to all a part of the green uh, agenda is that now we need to introduce this, you know into our system. Yeah, and another avenue I forgot to mention, you talked about this in an article I think you wrote this month in February, how also the scientific dictatorship te technocracy runs through the RAND Corporation, which I would also argue, you know, uh, probably as well in DARPA uh, and the Pentagon, who, um, you know, I mentioned the UN and the Great Reset and who created the technocratic uh, infrastructure that, that we have now, you know, the internet, uh, GPS, big tech, which was seed, seed funded by the Pentagon, you know, Google and Facebook mm -hmm. and all of that. And Amazon, now Microsoft are effectively part of <laughs> the Pentagon military uh, infrastructure. And so we, we've got all of these avenues to the Great Reset. Do you think um, from what you're, how you sound, you sound optimistic. Uh, do you think these eugenicist occult uh, elites are, are succeeding or that their plans? I are think very... that they're delusional. I think that they're, they're crazy and it's starting to show big time. Um, and the thing is, is that a lot of this move to like digitize everything and virtual reality, everything, what you see is that in reality, in physical economics, everything is breaking down. And what's odd is that I think that 
you know, that they've been planning this for a very long time, but I think that something has gone wrong in their timeline and they feel like they need to rush now. I think that this was probably ideally supposed to be something that was happening further down the road. They tend to like it more gradual, but, you know, you know, increase the temperature of that water gradually but now they've like gone from like a medium heat to extreme high heat very suddenly and everyone's kind of like waking up to like wait a minute there's something wrong here so when you have physical reality breaking down we have increased like astronomical levels of overdoses suicides um all these types of things uh i mean what's happening in canada right now is uh i've never thought that canadians would do something like this. And I mean, it just goes to show um, how obvious and how, how many people really do feel like this, this is, you know, the writing is on the wall at this point. Um, if Canadians are doing this, I mean, I think that that's a sign that uh, people recognize that there is a physical breakdown and they want the physical breakdown because they want mass depopulation but they 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 have totally mistimed everything and it's breaking apart at this point. I don't think that it is sustainable. And um, they've they've revealed themselves. They've revealed themselves more than they've ever had in history. Um, so I don't think that it's going to be uh, successful. No. And the reason why they're speeding it up is because, you know, um, there's the multipolarity. Uh, paradigm because they want the unipolar world government and there's a fight with the multipolarity view of um you know sovereignty and not just every all these colonies being managed by the the master the 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 head honcho so these uh this multi multipolarity has really um equipped itself to be uh, a a proper competitor in the physical reality, not in the weird digital, you know, world where, you know, you can be whatever avatar you want to be. So they can't compete with that. Yeah, <laughs> the events yesterday, I mean, a lot of people are saying that we've crossed the, the, the Rubicon. And, you know, it's yet to be determined exactly what that looks like. But we have definitely crossed some Rubicon with events with between Russia and, and Ukraine. And a lot of people saying, you know, that closed the book on the unipolar uh, world, uh, you know, on the Western hegemony. And, you know, it's going to be interesting for, you know, what's from here on out. Uh, and I think things are accelerating as well. Uh, oh, yeah. And so we're every week now, things are going to be, it's going to be fascinating. So Amazing. I don't know if you, yeah. yeah, I don't know if you have it. I mean, I just to comment also on the multipolar world, I have one fear in the back of my head uh, as well that you're talking about this unipolar world government that they've been trying to construct for the past century. I also have some fear. Again, who knows? I don't know. But this is also a fear that for me, any type of governance or political system has the potential to corrupt, you know, absolute power corrupts. Uh, absolutely. And so that there, you know, we have to fight against this. But even in the multipolar system, there is the potential uh, to go down that same road of a totalitarian global system um but i don't know if you have any other than uh you know final thoughts uh, to leave us with um well i mean i think that um we always were were fallible i mean this is the whole thing about the free, free choice right um the free choice of the will and often people will say like if there was a god why would he allow 
such horrible things to happen in the world. And the thing is that we always have the free choice of the will, but that is actually what makes it more beautiful and more moral that we rise to the occasion. And um, I think that right now, what I see coming out of the multipolarity alliance are a, a part of the world that has suffered for a very long time. And I think that they genuinely are fed up with it. And um, there's a lot of um, optimistic uh, things going on economically, you know, just even in West Asia in terms of opportunity um, to the point where even Yemen, you know, might have a bright future sooner than later. Hope, you know, let's hope. So there's a lot of there's a lot of optimism. And um, I think that we will have to be connected on a large scale no matter what um, as we move forward we have to have projects that have grand connections um spanning you know large amounts of area but if we if we have like more of a multipolarity um approach to things rather than a unipolar there will always be problems with like a a, a power grab but you know the the united nations under roosevelt from you know my uh what i've read was always to have this multipolarity, the, 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 the balance, always need that good balance between the West and the East. And, um, and so I think that the multi multipolarity right now with us being where we're at in terms of our, uh, our maturity is, is the best thing on, on the uh, being offered. Yeah. And, you know, I just like when things happen, like what happened, uh, this week, yesterday, I go back and dig up some of my old podcasts and, and put clips out, which often are prescient and, and predict uh, the future. And I, I found uh, my interview uh, from a year ago with Francis Boyle, where we discussed Russia, China, Iran, and how the U.S. or the West is, uh, what did he call it, uh, unlimited uh, imperialism. And that uh, he was saying a year ago that it seems like Putin and Xi are going to stand up. They're standing up and they're going to put a stop to this Western unlimited imperialism, which that was a year ago, and the events of yesterday, which what you just mentioned as well, that the the, the world that has been neglected is now putting a stop uh, to this. And so, yeah, a lot of interesting stuff is going on. Um, where are the best places for people to follow uh, your work and support you? Um, uh, my Substack page, uh, Through Glass Darkly, Cynthia Chung. You can find me or uh, the Rising Tide Foundation, um, Montreal, Canada. Make sure you click that in because there's apparently multiple ones. And we should have thought that through before we named it, but it was too late. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think. And you also write for Strategic Culture. And I think some of the Strategic pieces. Culture Foundation. Yes. And they also pop up on your Substack as well. I'll include all of the links uh, in the description. And yeah, thank you for uh, it. Was, it took us a while to connect. But finally, thank you. Thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, and after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our pro account. 
The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.